Are you in the market for a new home? Are you looking for a home with historical significance? How would you like to live in one of Los Angeles's most infamous houses? First time on the market in over 50 years, perched on a hill up a long driveway with sweeping views, sits this four-bedroom, three-bath Spanish Revival home on a large lot. Features include a grand entrance with a step-down living room with serene views, formal dining room, library study, large kitchen, and a ballroom with a bar on the third floor. Three-car garage at street level and two-car garage at the end of the driveway. Waiting for that special person looking for a wonderful opportunity to remodel or develop. We promise most of the blood has been cleaned up. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained, the podcast that's like, what are you afraid of? Ghosts aren't real. And then backs away slowly, locking the door behind it. I'm your host, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor with a large collection of crystals for protection, even though I'm pretty sure they're just rocks. This week, the Los Feliz Murder House. Don't be fooled by the prettiest house on the block. Something truly awful happened in there. Dr. Harold Perlson and his family could have been the poster family of the American dream. The son of immigrants who fled the repressive regime and hopeless future in Eastern Europe around the turn of the 20th century, Harold became a successful surgeon. After med school, Harold moved to Los Angeles where he published papers, became a prominent professor in cardiology, and was on surgery teams at some of the most prestigious hospitals in Los Angeles. It was in Los Angeles where he met and married Lillian Silver. By the late 1950s, with his wife and three children in tow, Dr. Pearlson bought the home at 2475 Glendower Place in the foothills of Los Angeles' Los Feliz neighborhood for around $60,000, or about half a million in today money. The home was described as a delightful 12-room home with terraced lawns, artistic gardens, and a magnificent view. A spacious tiled entrance hall and stairway led to a charming living room, a glass conservatory, dining room, den, breakfast room, and kitchen. To most people looking in at the Pearlsons' life from the outside, they had it all. A perfect family in a perfect home. And then, on the evening of December 6, 1959, at about 4.30 in the morning, 14-year-old Sherry Lewis, who lived next door and sometimes babysat for the Pearlsons, heard a blood-curdling scream come from the Pearlsons' house. Sherry said at first she thought it was some kind of wild animal. And if you've ever been in the Hollywood Hills around sunset and heard the cacophony of coyotes screaming in the canyons, you understand. Honestly, those things can sound like some off-the-hinges 1970s orgy. It's not cute. But this definitely wasn't a coyote, because the next thing Sherry heard was the voice of her 18-year-old neighbor, Judy Pearlson, screaming, Don't kill me. Moments later, Sherry heard Judy pounding on her front door, screaming for help. Sherry couldn't move. She was frozen in fear, which, like, absolutely, girl, you're 14, I get it, but what the fuck were her parents doing? It wasn't until Judy tried another neighbor, Marshall Ross, that a door was open to her. She was bleeding from a major wound on her head. Marshall called the police. 
After calling the police, Marshall walked into the Pearlsons' home to find the two younger children, Debbie, 13, and Joel, 11, most likely in a state of complete shock. Debbie, having heard her older sister's screams, had come out into the hallway and found her father, Harold Pearlson, holding a bloodied ball-peen hammer, dripping blood onto the floor. Harold told Debbie, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Now, I think it's a safe bet that Harold may have been trying to convince his daughter that what she was seeing wasn't real, but I can't help but wonder if a piece of him was simply commenting on what was happening and how it wasn't going the way he wanted it to. As in, this is a nightmare. All I wanted to do was murder my family, and I've got the one kid running to the neighbors and the other standing there scared shitless. Surely he did not anticipate his eldest child waking up and alerting his other children, let alone the rest of the neighborhood. But, thank the Lord baby Jesus, she did. After finding the two younger children frozen on the first floor, Marshall Ross, the neighbor who called the police, went up to the second floor of the house where he found Harold, who calmly told him, Go home. Don't bother me. Meanwhile, the police had yet to arrive. Marshall took the advice and did not bother Harold, who was still holding the hammer covered in blood. Instead, Marshall watched as Harold walked into the bathroom. Now, I don't know how much of this next part Marshall saw or if it was pieced together later. I would imagine if a man covered in blood tells you not to bother him, the smart thing to do is go and check on the poor terrorized children downstairs. I cannot imagine what was going through Marshall's head at this point. Had he noticed that Mrs. Pearlson was nowhere to be seen? Had he started putting the pieces together? Had Judy told him? In the bathroom, Harold Pearlson opened two capsules of Nebutal, a fatal barbiturate nicknamed Death in a Bottle. And why someone has this kind of drug just laying around in the bathroom their children use is beyond me. I mean, I get it. He's a surgeon and... People apparently thought children were either invincible or expendable in the 50s, but, like, put that shit up in a high cabinet or at the top of a closet. Anyway. Harold then took 31 small white pills, which were either codeine or some other tranquilizer, just in case the death in a bottle didn't do the trick. When the police finally showed up, 15 minutes after being called, Mr. Pearlson was barely breathing. By the time the ambulance got there, he was dead. So there's Mr. Pearlson, dead in his daughter's room. His three children have all been accounted for, but where is their mother? Police found Lillian Pearlson in the bed she shared with her husband, unrecognizable from the beating she had taken with the ball-peen hammer still clutched in Harold's hand when the police found him dying on his daughter's bed. Now, look, if you know me, you know I'm not going to linger on this dude too long or try to figure out why he did what he did. Men who kill their wives and try to kill their children are trash, and there's never a good reason. We all know that there are basically only two excuses men use to kill their wives and families, money and lust. Harold Pearlson was not exceptional. So what was it? Why would a man with a seemingly idyllic life suddenly brutally murder his wife, 
try to kill his children and then kill himself. Dr. Harold Perlson left a few clues behind before downing that bottle of pills. The first clue police found was a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy on Perlson's nightstand, left open on a page with this passage. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. For those of you who had the pleasure of missing out on English 101 in college, first of all, congrats, you did it. And second of all, Dante's Divine Comedy is basically a really long poem about a guy going through a midlife crisis. Some people believe Pearlson either consciously or subconsciously left this passage open at the scene of the crime as his way of saying, look, I'm over 50 and life isn't easy anymore. Which, like, ooh fucking who, Harold, get a grip. Pick up meditation, do some journaling, learn to garden, you know? It turns out that older white guys report depression at higher rates than other demographics, which either means A, other demographics are less likely to report depression, or B, white men get super sad when they're not at the top of the food chain anymore. And of course, there were financial problems. The Pearlson's financial bind stemmed from the fact that Mr. Pearlson had sunk a lot of his own money into developing and designing a new type of syringe that he claimed would prevent contamination and spillage. The person he was developing the device with ran off with the patent, leaving Pearlson in debt. Pearlson sued, but didn't walk away with anywhere near as much as he would have if he'd profited from the invention. A few years after that, Judy got into a car accident with her two younger siblings in the car. Everyone walked away from the accident, but Pearlson took the other driver to court. He got enough to cover the medical expenses, but not the damage to the car. So it seems that between getting swindled by his business partner and the car accident, Pearlson's finances took a huge hit. But the truth is, plenty of people are in terrible financial ruin and somehow manage not to murder their families over it. And plenty of people reach their 50s and start thinking about their mortality and what they've done with their lives thus far, and they may be disappointed, but they too manage to not go on to commit familicide. And let me just say, the fact that we even have a word for killing your whole family is distressing. Like it happens enough that people were like, we gotta come up with a quicker way of saying killed his entire family. And like, I get it, sometimes having a family is no fun, or whatever, but buy a Porsche, get a mistress, follow a guru to Bali and end up in a cult, or something. I guess it didn't occur to Harold that he was literally sitting in a half million dollar home. I guess murdering his wife and attempting to murder his family was easier than going down to the bank to refinance. Also, just a weird side note, in an interview many years later, Sherry Lewis, the Pearlson's former neighbor and babysitter, suggested that everyone would have been happier if her father had been married to Lillian Pearlson and her mother had been married to Harold, which is a very weird thing to say about a man who murdered his wife. I wish that murderous monster had been my dad. She also said Dr. Pearlson gave really good injections. Um, okay. 
The weirdest part of this story, as far as I'm concerned, is that Harold Perlson was a surgeon. He had access to serious drugs. The drugs were in his house. Did it not occur to him that he could have drugged his family? That that would have been the more humane way to slaughter them? Like a ball-peen hammer? Of all things, that's the weapon you chose? A ball-peen hammer doesn't even have those nasty claws. Did he not plan for any one of the first three people he murdered to scream, alerting the remaining people? Did he really think he was going to beat them all to death in absolute silence? Did he not understand how pain works? By all accounts, the evening had been uneventful. No fighting, no unusual behavior. Unless he and his wife got into one of those whisper-yell fights that parents do sometimes so they don't wake their kids up. Except it's pretty clear Lillian, his wife, had been asleep when she was attacked. So it seems like Dr. Pearlson planned it, but planned it really fucking poorly. At the end of the day, Harold Pearlson was a coward and total garbage who dug himself into a hole and couldn't think of any way out that wasn't extraordinarily violent. The two younger Pearlson children were taken in by their mother's sister. Judy was already 18, so I think they were like, uh, sorry this happened to you. Good luck with your life. The children were basically left with nothing. Judy apparently changed her name frequently throughout her life. The thing is, no matter how many times you change your name, nothing can ever change your past. Now, this is where the Pearlson story ends, but the house at 2475 Glendower Place still stands today. What happens to a house with such a grisly past? Less than a year after the events of December 6, 1959, the house was sold at auction to Julian and Emily Enriquez from Lincoln Heights, a neighborhood just a few miles away. But the Enriquez family never moved in. To this day, no one knows why they didn't move in. It's not like they bought the house and then found out what happened in it after it was too late. The law in California states that potential buyers have to be notified if there was a death on the property within three years of the purchase. So they knew going in. And as far as anyone can tell, they never even tried to move in. In fact, for the entire time the Enriquez's owned the house, they never even moved the Pearlson's furniture out, keeping it almost like a time capsule of the night of the murder-slash-suicide. According to the neighbors, the Enriquez's would visit occasionally and bring items basically just to store in the house. Neighbors said they were quiet and kept to themselves. They weren't rude, but they weren't friendly either. They were just there. And I can imagine that Julian and Emily Enriquez might have felt a bit like fish out of water in this tony part of Los Feliz. Their neighborhood of Lincoln Heights had been in economic decline for a few decades and was home to mostly low-income immigrants by that point. And I don't want to make assumptions, but I will anyway, that the Los Feliz neighbors weren't exactly running over with welcome cookies when the Enriquez's did come by. 
but why in the world would anyone buy a 12-room mansion at auction and not move in? It's not like the house needed work. It was in great shape when they bought it. Why would they just use it as a glorified storage unit? Why not sell it? As far as anyone knows, they didn't even try to sell it. Even stranger, I think, their son Rudy inherited the house in 1994, and he didn't move in either. He did have a security system installed, though, which is a weird thing to do to a house you don't seem to have any intention of living in. What was the Enriquez family planning to do with the house? Why did they buy it in the first place? Why did they never try to sell it? Why in the world would you buy a home just to let it sit and rot? Over the years, the legend of the stuff left in the house has grown. There's the legend of the Christmas tree in the living room, complete with wrapped presents underneath. One rumor was that the Pearlsons had already put up their tree and wrapped their gifts, but A, it's unclear this alleged Christmas tree ever existed. I didn't see any pictures of it. And B, not for nothing, but the Pearlsons were Jewish. That doesn't mean that they didn't celebrate Christmas. I'm Jewish and I grew up celebrating Christmas, but I don't think the tree, even if there was a tree, and those presents were theirs. But if the Enriquez family never moved in, who was celebrating Christmas in that house? Also, who are all these people who have a Christmas tree and wrapped presents by December 6th? Am I the only one running around on December 23rd grabbing the last tube of wrapping paper left at CVS? Another rumor is that the Enriquez's possibly rented the house to tenants at some point who suddenly fled the home in a panic on the anniversary of the murder-slash-suicide. This seems like a stretch. First of all, no one knows for sure if there ever were any renters in the house on Glendower Place. And second, if there were renters, one would hope they would have been alerted to the events that took place there in December 1959. And if they already knew, what would make them suddenly flee and never return? Like, even if they thought they saw a ghost or neighbor kids were playing a prank trying to scare them, one would think they might return the next day and get their shit? Over the years, a few curious and either really brave or really careless people snuck in to snap pictures of the home and, of course, put those pictures on the internet. Looking at these photos is like stepping through the looking glass into the middle of the 20th century. First of all, the exterior of the house looks pretty immaculate. Like, driving by, you would never think, that's definitely a murder house. Like, I've gone to look at houses on the market with much worse exteriors than this one. It turns out over the years, neighbors complained about the state of the house because, God forbid, everything in your neighborhood doesn't look perfect. Rudy was forced to keep up the exterior, which, again, why are you sinking money into an empty house? So, the big arched brown wooden front door looks like the entrance to a medieval dungeon. I imagine when the Pearlson kids brought friends over, they had to be like, oh, don't mind the dungeon door. The inside is totally not a dungeon. There's a picture of a staircase just beyond the living room that's captioned, um, the staircase is the scariest thing ever seen by mankind. And girl, I get it with the hyperbole. I am literally the most hyperbolic person in the universe, but like, 
that's just a staircase. You should see the staircases in the house I grew up in. There were three of them, and they were winding, with holes in the walls here and there, and definitely no light. My parents seemed to have some anti-light fixture policy when I was growing up, which meant that in order to get from the first floor to my bedroom on the third floor, I had to run as fast as I could up a winding dark staircase and just hope that monsters weren't going to jump out of the holes in the walls. Anyway... From the pictures I've been able to see, there is no Christmas tree. But there, under the peeling paint on the ceiling, is the wrapped present in Mickey Mouse wrapping paper. And sitting on an old sofa is more wrapping paper and ribbons. The sofa faces an old console TV set on random boxes and furniture, as if someone was watching Gilligan's Island while wrapping presents. Some of the rooms looked like they were just dumping grounds for stuff. There's an ancient bottle of boric acid just sitting out on the counter. Mid-century furniture, some covered in drop cloth, some exposed. Life and Post magazines, canned food, weird, creepy-ass dolls just laying there being all judgy. All just sitting there over the years collecting dust. Other rooms were conspicuously more neat, less dusty almost like maybe someone used them fairly regularly. There's a bright red magazine caddy in perfect condition with the words U.S. Males, spelled M-A-L-E-S, prefer early times, true old-style Kentucky bourbon. The package wrapped in Disney wrapping paper, it looks like it was wrapped yesterday. Stacks of boxes and books, all relatively dust-free, or at least not with 60 years' worth of dust. If I don't dust my house each week, which, please trust me, I do not, there's about an inch of dust everywhere. The yellow leather chairs sitting by the entranceway don't look dusty. They don't look like they've been neglected for decades. Even the creepy-ass judgy dolls, they should be dirtier. There are handwritten receipts from 1979 in a neat stack on a desk. No dust. To me, the creepiest picture is the one with the metal chair with the vinyl seat sitting a couple feet from a vintage rusty oven with the door falling off. Why was someone sitting there? Why were they sitting so close to the oven? It's not like the gas was on. Maybe they had used the oven like a fireplace, which... I suppose if you're squatting at the house and you don't want the neighbors to notice would be less conspicuous than using the actual fireplace. It's just a weird place to put a chair, you know? But as you look closer at the vintage contents of the house, you notice that not all of it could have been there when the Pearlsons left in 1959. Magazines from the 1960s. Packaging from food that didn't exist in 1959. It's likely that squatters would have used the house over the years. Some say that sex workers have brought clients there. But what's weird about that is wouldn't the house have been in worse shape? Squatters are not really known for their tidiness, generally speaking. And don't get me wrong, the house is not tidy by any means. 
But it's also not this house has been vacant and left to the whims of random people messy. Usually where one finds squatters, one finds graffiti, dirty mattresses, and like, drug paraphernalia? At the very least, you think someone would have opened that goddamn present at some point. There are clothes hanging on a line inside. White clothes. They're not moth-eaten or falling apart like you might think decades-old clothes would be. It's like someone just hung them up and stepped out to get the mail. To this day, no one seems to be sure of anything about the years the house at 2475 Glendower sat empty, like a shrine to some gruesome past. How some things collected decades of dust and others remained remarkably clean. Why no one saw fit to move in or sell it. Why Rudy held on to it from the time his parents died in 94 until his death in 2015. There he was, a music store manager, sitting on a $2.5 million fortune, just letting it fade away. Rudy said he had no interest in selling it. Imagine what he could have done with all that money. It's really strange. In 2016, the house was finally put back on the market after 50 years. The realtors had their work cut out for them, getting the house ready to be viewed. They did an incredible job. The floors look impeccable, not a scratch, not a scuff. And I can't imagine anyone forked over their own money to fix the house before selling it. Like, I get maybe slapping on a new coat of paint or something, but buffering and lacquering hardwood floors? I don't think so. Also, there in the master bedroom where Dr. Pearlson bludgeoned his wife to death is a remarkably intact, totally not crumbling or peeling stencil of a peacock in a tree. Honestly, I would pay someone a lot of money for something like that. Anyway, Lisa Bloom, who you may know as Harvey Weinstein's former attorney who actively tried to protect him from rape allegations, she bought the house. Lisa Bloom proceeded to gut the house for a complete overhaul renovation. That means all of the beautiful historic detail is gone. And look, I'm no architect, but it seems to me if you buy a gorgeous Spanish revival from the 1920s that probably doesn't need much more than some cosmetic work and a lot of saging, you want to keep the historical integrity of the house. Not Lisa Bloom. Lisa was like, get rid of all of it. But then, oopsie, after stripping the whole house basically down to its foundation, Bloom claimed she then found out that bringing the house up to code would be too expensive. Cool. Maybe next time, check with the city before taking a sledgehammer to a 100-year-old house? Anyway... In 2019, the house was bought again by some people who began to chronicle their renovation journey on Instagram. It was pretty cool to follow while it lasted. Their last post was on February 8th, 2021. Rumor has it someone bought the rights to the story, which I guess belonged to the new owners of the house. Who knew that buying an old house granted you ownership to all the things that may have happened inside it over the years? 
The good news is whoever bought the rights will probably have a platform longer than a half hour podcast to tell the story. So maybe we'll finally find out all the nitty gritty details of the weird time capsule the house at 2475 Glendower became. Though something tells me the audience that goes to see a movie about a gruesome murder-slash-suicide is more interested in the gruesome murder-slash-suicide than in why a multi-million dollar house in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Los Angeles sat empty, collecting memories that we may never know the stories behind. Leave it to people like me, and hopefully you, to be like, no, 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 this is a story about a creepy house and the two generations of a family who sat on riches and let them crumble and collect dust. At the end of the day, for people like us, a man murdering his wife and killing himself is, unfortunately, not that strange and unexplained. And here's a cool addendum, strangers. I got to tour the Los Angeles murder house last week. Stacy Estenius, creator of the new podcast miniseries The Los Feliz Murder Mansion, gave me a private walkthrough with the new developers. I stood in the spot where Dr. Pearlson murdered his wife Lillian. I walked through the Jack and Jill bathroom that connected the Pearlson's master bedroom to Judy's room, where Dr. Pearlson took the poison, and into Judy's room where he laid down one final time to die. I stood on this really creepy wrought iron balcony just off Judy's old room. The balcony, for some strange reason, had an entire cage around it. The house really was stripped down to its studs, but there were some cool remnants of the original house. There are ancient stickers seemingly a permanent part of the closet doors in one of the younger kids' rooms. A beautiful old icebox in the attic slash bar, and... Rather ominously, a radiator from the Pacific Gas Radiator Company in Huntington Park, California, with a swastika etched into the gas knob. We'll post all the pics on our socials. Stacy told me that she interviewed Rudy Enriquez before he died and finally got an answer as to why neither he nor his parents ever moved into the house. She even tracked down Judy. Stacy said that Dr. Pearlson never intended to murder the two younger children. She said he was enraged at his wife and oldest child for, quote, getting him into too much debt, which is ironic since he's the one that bought the house in the first place. But sure, blame it on the women folk. Anyway, I highly recommend Stacy's podcast, Los Feliz Murder Mansion. Give it a listen for way more information than I could fit in this episode or even knew about and to see what I missed. Also, just a quick note on pronunciation. As you heard, I say Los Feliz. Stacy says Los Feliz. Both ways are correct. Los Angelinos do tend to say Los Feliz. But I did check with one of my native Angelino friends, and she said, Los Feliz is perfectly acceptable. Enjoy. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, the Cecil Hotel. Elisa Lamb died there, Richard Ramirez lived there, but there are other stories you haven't heard about how the Cecil became one of the most infamous buildings in the United States. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and at Daisy Egan. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>